Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. I record uh, my class lectures for the most part. I do this so my online students can get a piece of the lecture. You know, some students like to, to access that. I've actually got two students that couldn't be here today in this class. And so I'll be able to send out this lecture later and those students can listen to it if they want to. It goes to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, several other podcast locations. So it's a really cheap, convenient way to record lecture material and get that out. If you guys want to listen to it, that's great. If you don't, that's okay. But it is neat. I've had students give me positive feedback to say they, they enjoy you don't have access to a lecture at a later date. Um, some students in the past have recorded lectures on their own devices, and now this is just a centralized recording that everybody can access. And in addition to that, um, it's kind of like a repository of what was said uh, and documents that, so you could go back years later and, and revisit that lecture. So um, I'm going to go ahead and jump back into talking about Chapter 1. And if you guys have any questions, comments, feedback, uh, don't hesitate to just jump in there and have a comment. I, I encourage that so I can get this straight. There we go. All right. So chapter one is really just kind of breaking the ice with economic systems and business. Uh, I'm going to do a brief recap of kind of what we talked about on Tuesday, and then we'll kind of get into the, the rest of the chapter and new material. Uh, so we said... Basically, the idea of a business is a organization that is built around the idea of selling goods and services, right? That is, it's either this or that. You're the selling goods, services, or both. And the best businesses solve a problem. They fix, they fix a problem that exists in the environment. Uh, you know, they, they provide a service that's needed. And they, the, whoever can solve it in the best way usually is the one that wins, the one that succeeds. So um, business is always striving to innovate. And capitalism is the best system we have on earth because it encourages innovation. We want businesses to strive to provide goods and services that improve our quality of life and standard of living. And you see that right there. Technology is extremely deflationary. Let me explain what that means. You've heard of that term inflation, right? Money printing, you know, as the government prints more money, there's more money in circulation. It makes things more expensive because it takes more dollars to purchase those items. But we don't talk about deflation that much. Deflation makes things cheaper because if you think about how we produce cars 100 years ago versus how we produce cars now, think about how much better, more efficient we are at making those cars, right? Um, cars is actually a bad example because uh, cars are very expensive, but... Um, think about anything you would buy like in Dollar Tree. That's a better example. So when you go to Dollar Tree and you buy something for a dollar, you buy this marker here, they, they have like got the technology now to probably produce this. How much do you think it went into producing this one individual marker? I have no idea. What do you guys think? Like two cents. Two cents? That's what I was thinking. You know, something like two cents to make this. And over time, you know, it used to be probably more, but they've gotten more and more efficient where they can produce more of these in a shorter amount of time, using less resources, using less human resources, using less capital. And so they figured out ways to make it even better, faster. 
And so because of that, it's deflationary. It should be able to be to consumers uh, much cheaper. A really good example of this is televisions. Um, you know, when my dad bought his first flat screen TV, he tells me this story of time. I think the first flat screen TV he got was around like 43 inches, something like that. He paid like over $3,000 for that thing. It's, and it's, a, well, it's kind of a big, thick flat screen. It's not what you see nowadays. And so for that same 43 inch flat screen today, uh, it's probably that thick and it probably costs three or $400 now, right? And so technology, it's, it's, it's been able to leverage that and cut the price down by 90%. The first VCR my parents bought was $1,000. Today you could go buy a VCR for 20 or 30 bucks. The first DVD player I bought was $250. It was a Panasonic. It was right when DVD came out. Cutting edge, you know, I had to have the latest and greatest, right? Because I'd had v VHS all my life. Thought DVD was where it's at. So I bought my first DVD player, 250 bucks. Today you can get a DVD player for 20 or 30 bucks. And now I don't even want DVDs, right? Are we beyond DVDs now, everybody? Yeah. Does people still use them, kinda? Not really? No. I, I haven't put a DVD in a player in years. I, I mean, honestly, like, I've got, like, some DVDs left that I don't know what to do with. You know, like, I've got, a, like, a, a set of Star Wars movies that, you know, was a $70 set, new Blu-ray, that's not only worth, like, 15 or 20 bucks, and I hate to sell it for 15 or 20 bucks, but you can get all those movies on Disney Plus or, you know, streaming service. So... Yeah, technology, extremely deflationary. It's there to improve our standard of living, quality of life. We talked about risk is the potential to lose time and money or otherwise not be able to accomplish an organization's goal. Risk is present all the time. You have to keep that in mind. In fact, uh, you have to ask yourself as a business student, as a person, as an entrepreneur, as a manager leader, what risk am I missing out on by not seizing opportunities? So like... You guys are taking a risk coming here, right? I mean, this is an investment. You're sacrificing time and talent to pursue a degree to what end? We don't know. I mean, anytime that you pursue something, it's a, you're gambling that, hey, if I go get this degree, I believe it will lead to a better outcome than if I don't get it. So let's look at the, 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 the counter argument. If you guys dropped out of school, what's the risk of doing that? I can tell you the risk is great. Um, I know people that don't have college degrees, friends and family, that it's harder to get a better quality job without one. It just is. Not saying you can't get a good job. You probably, I mean, you can. Um, there's, there's people out there that make a fine living with no college education. Uh, my dad never went to college, as an example. But in this environment we're in now, I think the risk is greater of you not getting a college education than getting one. Because... Um, my wife was looking for a job within the past year. She doesn't have a college degree. And a lot of the entry-level positions required an associate at least. And that's, I mean, when you think about these entry-level positions, these are positions that are salaried, that come with benefits like health insurance and things like that. And so uh, not having a degree kind of puts you in an awkward position of having to try to compete against people that have degrees uh, and trying to vie for these positions. And so... Um, you know, risk is, like I said, is present everywhere. You have to identify uh, just because you don't feel like you're in a risky situation, um, you're still missing out on opportunities potentially, and you need to identify what those are and see if you can capitalize on that. We talked about revenue and costs. Revenue is all the money a business brings in. It's not necessarily the profit. The profit's what's left after you take out the cost or things like 
rent, salary, supplies, things like that. We also talked about the four factors of production. Remember, land, labor, capital, entrepreneurship. It takes these things to make business work. You've got to have these different factors. Even if you're a home-based business operating on the Internet, you still got to have that location where you operate, right? You've got to have some money to make the business go. You've got to have some type of effort that goes into it, and you've got to have the entrepreneur. Even a sole proprietor, just one person running it, takes effort. You know, So four factors of production are present. We talked about the internal and external environments. These different uh, factors that exist that businesses should constantly be sizing up. Like, I had a student ask me a week ago or two about, should I continue to get my bachelor's degree? And that's a difficult question because it's very subjective. It's, it's based on your preferences, your goals, desires, dreams. Depends on what type of degree you'd be pursuing. Depends on how much student loan debt you're going to incur. Depends on the type of employment you're looking for post-graduation. There's a lot of factors that go into that question. But uh, my like, outlook, because I constantly do this for myself, is... My children, I'm going to advise them to pursue a community college applied degree, something in a uh, trade or medical field, something like that. You know, I'm thinking dental hygiene, nursing, radiography, uh, IT, networking, things like that. I mean, we graduate students from here that start out in the fifty to $70,000 income bracket um, going through our IT department or our IT. Uh, I actually, I did a uh, mock interview for a student that was interviewing at a, a triangle company for some type of technology position. And uh, his starting salary was over $60,000. I was like, that's incredible. But that's a demand job. And this student, prior to entering this college, had done an assessment. They figured out, hey, this is what the type of opportunity I need to, uh, in order to capitalize. This is where the demand is. So, yeah, just because you want to be whatever it is you want to be when you grow up, that's all good and fine, but you really should assess, is that going to be needed? You know, um, I'm, I came from a liberal arts college, which means uh, study, uh, studies a variety of topics, and uh, we encourage people to uh, learn about the, the arts and things like that, but I wouldn't advise my own child to go get a degree in art history as an example. Nothing wrong with studying art history. I love art, but your job prospects with that are very limited. And then you can take the contrarian point, too, and say, well, uh, the world needs people to study art history. There's no disagreement in that. But I just think the, uh, the, if you're looking from a purely financial and career-based prospects, you've got to be selective. And so businesses, like individuals, are constantly sizing up what the demand is going to be. They're going to ask themselves, you know, we're doing a fine business right now, but what's the demand going to be like in five years? What's our customer going to want? I joined a car wash recently, I think I might have mentioned it, and it's a subscription. You drive through, they do a quick hand wash, and then you go through the wash. So $10 a month, and then it goes to 20 after three months. But that's the new model. You know, before that, you had to go to a coin-based operation, and then, you know, you put some coins in, then you're racing against the timer to use the power washer and scrubber. Everybody's done this before, right? And, you know, it's, it's expensive. I probably run through $10 worth of quarters by the time I – pressure wash it and scrub it and vacuum it and all that stuff. And, you know, it's just a race to try to get everything done. But with this thing, it, it's more convenient and uh, it's unlimited. So it's a better model than the old car wash model was. And so you've got to be willing to adapt and change. And so um, this is just talking about a nation's economic system is the combination of policies, laws, and choices made by its government 
to establish the system that determine what goods and services are produced and how they are allocated. Economics is the study of how a society uses scarce resources to produce and distribute goods and services. So this is new content. I, I feel like I left off on another slide, this one. Yeah, I must have skipped this one the other day. That's okay. Um, and so it really comes down to, in a country, what natural resources are available. Going back to the factors of production, remember? Land, labor, resources, capital, uh, and entrepreneurship. Yeah, you, you've got to have some natural resources in place. If you're a country that has a bunch of flat land and you want to start selling timber, well, that's going to be a problem if you don't have any timber resources to rely on, right? So you've got to look at what your country's natural resources are that you can, um, you can leverage, that you can take advantage of in order, to, um, in order to sell that. If you go out to the Middle East, they've got a ton of oil out there. That's their natural resource. That's what they leverage. That's what they use. Uh, in the United States, we're fortunate to have a bunch of different natural resources that we are able to take advantage of. But these resources are scarce. Some of them are not easily replenished or not replenishable at all. They're finite. And so we have to, as a society, plan around that. Uh, that word sustainability pops up a whole lot in business, and it pops up a lot in this class. So if we are a company that, that uses natural resources in the form of timber, you know, are we planning, uh, if we go through and buy land and cutting the trees, if we're not replanting, then eventually we're going to run out of timber to sell. That's just going to, that's going to hit us. So we need to have a plan that's a multi-decade plan where as we go through and take these resources, there's going to be something to come back around to and keep that process going. And so uh, everybody okay on this note? Economics is the study of how a society uses scarce resources to produce and distribute goods and services. Yeah, we'll talk about economics uh, a bit in here as well. This is kind of a survey course, a little bit of everything. Um, and of course, you will have, if you're a business major, you will have an economics class that talks about things in more detail. All right, one second. Don't worry. Don't worry. All right. So I'm going to move on real quick. So we did talk about this. Um, no, actually we didn't, sorry. Um, this is the different types of economic systems around the world. So we are into new content. Um, so you've probably heard of some of these. You may not fully grasp all these different types of systems, but right now we live in a capitalistic system. Um, it's not pure capitalism because we do have some government interventions. Um, it's more of a socio-capitalistic system that we live in now where um, <laughs> it's, it's very, it's like capitalism in the middle and then uh, for wealthy individuals, they get quite a bit of corporate welfare and socialism through the form of bailouts and things like that. And then uh, the bottom tier also gets government support. So it's an interesting system, but it's the system we have. Keep in mind that every system can improve. It doesn't matter if you've got what you think is the best system in the world. Every system can continue to improve. Uh, I'm not going to read every section of this chart. It is in the book, but I will kind of go over some of the high points. So in capitalism, businesses are owned by a private individual. Minimal government ownership or interference. Uh, even though we have individual owners in our system, we still have things that are called regulations. The government produces these regulatory agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, the FTC, uh, EPA, well, I already mentioned EPA, um, 
Food and Drug Administration, the USDA, these regulatory agencies set forth regulations in order to protect the customer or protect individuals. That's the main reason regulations exist. It's not to be a bummer on businesses. You know, when OSHA comes through um, and inspects an organization for safety issues and they find them or close them down, it's not to hamper capitalism. It's not to punish the owner of the business. It's to enforce the fact that we need to make sure that we're producing products and services in a safe way. Um, it pops up every so often that you'll hear about there's been a salmonella breakout or an E. coli outbreak or things, something like that. There was a case that came up a couple years ago where a peanut butter manufacturer produced peanut butter that was tainted with E. coli, I believe, and the owner or the president knew about it, and he signed off on a batch of peanut butter shipping anyway because in his mind he felt the risk was minimal that somebody would suffer and get infected, but he didn't want to throw away the whole batch and throw that, you know, lose the money on that. Um, multiple people died from that, uh, and not only did multiple people die, many people were uh, hospitalized. Let me, uh, give me a second. I'll pull that up. This is a really interesting YouTube. Let's see. I hope the audio is working. We'll see. Um, peanut. Um, butter. I think I misspelled peanut. I did. Butter case. Jail. Uh, Let's see, I think tainted peanut butter. Yeah, right here. Dismiss. There we go. The man at the center of the nation's largest food recall ever made no apologies today. In fact, he said almost nothing at all. Parnell chose not to be in the hearing room when devastated families testified, sharing pictures of lost loved ones. My father was a good man. My father died because he ate peanut butter. I want to see jail time. Inspectors found roaches and mold in Parnell's plants. In newly released internal emails, Parnell orders workers to turn peanut products loose onto the market even after they tested positive for salmonella, salmonella at least a dozen times since 2007. In other emails, Parnell complains that the time lapse while awaiting salmonella test results is costing him huge and says he desperately needs to turn his peanuts into money. The tainted food made its way into schools, nursing homes, and as many as 1,800 products, including three-year-old Jacob Hurley's peanut butter crackers. He was sick for weeks. The family watched in disgust today as Parnell refused to testify. Face the music, stand up. Let, let Congressman ask the questions of you. <laughs> he did none of it. 
But Parnell has to be careful about what he says now that criminal charges are a possibility. The Department of Justice is investigating Katie and his facilities have been raided by the FBI. Ooh, FBI has gotten involved. Um, let's see. I'm trying to find that. Uh, hang on. Stuart Parnell. From one corporate consumer-related scandal to another, Stuart Parnell, he is the top-ranking exec of the Peanut Corporation of America. He was sentenced yesterday to 28 years behind bars. It is the toughest penalty ever for a corporate executive in a food poisoning outbreak. He is 61 years old. Unless he wins an appeal, he will die in prison. Fox News senior judicial analyst, Judge Andrew Napolitano, is with me now. Judge, it is great to see you. Oh, likewise. So it seems as if Stuart Parnell is going to die in prison for all intents and purposes, but he admitted it, right? He got this news of Salmonella being in the peanuts and said, just ship it. I can't afford to lose another customer. Well, that, that's actually what, what caused him to be convicted here is a combination of emails and the testimony of others involved in what the government called was a grand criminal conspiracy, the end result of which was sickening 20,000 people and killing nine people. No, it's crazy. When, when you look at it that way, and I don't believe in very heavy sentences, but when you look at it that way, 28 years, he was exposed to 800 years if you, if you, if you separated each of the injuries and each of the deaths. You put an adulterated product in the stream of commerce that is capable of maiming and killing, and you do so knowingly, and you order people to do it, and you do it with other people, uh, you, you have to expect this kind of a consequence. I mean, he did say, I'm sorry, but I'm sure for those nine families that lost members, they don't really care that he's Well, here, here's the interesting thing. That there have been no civil lawsuits yet, because the rule of thumb is you wait until the criminal case is over. The criminal case is over now. A criminal case ends at the time of sentencing. He can file his appeal, but his appeal is not going to affect the civil case. Here's what's going to happen in the civil case. The insurance carriers, there's more than one, are going to say, we insured for negligence. Mm. This was not negligence. This, this was, was done with purpose. Right? This was an intentional criminal act. Don't look to us. Look to the assets of the corporation, which probably would put it out of business if all 22,000 people plus the estates of the nine who died sued. So, Judge, have you ever seen anything like this? I remember there was the Tylenol case back in the late 80s, but there's well, nothing uh, where... Tylenol was an interloper. It wasn't the it wasn't right, corporation. They, they may have had faulty caps, but it wasn't intentional. No, I've never seen one uh, like this. And my first reaction was, uh, this is some judge, some Justice Department that hates business. I never heard of a 28-year prison sentence for a white-collar crime, but the, this is uh, one of the worst examples I've ever seen. Now, in, in All right. I like to show stuff like this and I will try to show stuff throughout the semester because I like to show what not to do. And I'm sure this, this individual, if he could go back and um, rethink what he was doing, he would say, maybe the company will go out of business if I don't do the, or maybe the company will go out of business if I don't make this money, but it wouldn't kill all these people. I mean, you can recover from going out of business. You know, bankruptcy happens. In fact, some of the wealthiest people on earth have been bankrupt before. That's just part of, that's actually part of 
the game of business is bankruptcy. I mean, sometimes you lose, but you can get back up. But uh, as you can see, regulations were designed in this case to protect the consumer. They, they did not protect the consumer because the business chose to go against the regulations. Um, briefly talking about communism, socialism, and mixed economies. Communism, government owns all or most enterprise. That is not a good way to operate because you're, stamp, you're stifling innovation. You're not allowing the market to say, this is what we want. We want individual businesses to make this happen. But if you have a communistic system, the government imposes these factors of production and business on people, whether it's what they want or not. And so if you do a quick study around the world of communistic systems, you'll see very quickly that they're not popular with the people and they're, they're, they're rife with problems and corruption. Even in our system, we have a ton of corruption, but uh, communistic systems have a lot more corruption. Um, at least that's what my observation is. Socialism, you've probably heard that word. Basic industries such as railroad and utilities are owned by the government. Very high taxation as government redistributes income from successful private businesses and entrepreneurs. Uh, and then mixed economies, private ownership of land and business, but government controls some enterprise. The private sector is typically large. And so you do see um, a blend of different types of system here. Um, I still stand by capitalism is the best. It's not perfect by any means, uh, but you do have opportunities in capitalism, whereas you may not have the same opportunities in some of these other systems. Do take some time in the book and review this chart. So let's talk about GDP real quick. You may have heard that before. Gross domestic product, the total market value of all final goods and services produced within a nation's border each year. So uh, we have kind of gone through a transition in the past multi-decades, 50, 60 years now, where more and more of our GDP or our products have been shipped offshore, uh, places like China, where they produce things over there and we bring them back over here. So, so a lot of our industry, as far as production industry, um, has uh, kind of gone down over the past several decades. Uh, we want to still, we still produce things and we want to continue to produce things so we can maintain that, that GDP. Um, think about it this way, if we never produced anything and we're only buying things, then what do we have to sell in order to raise money to buy those things, you know? We have more and more become a service economy in the United States where um, we are in service to each other. You know, somebody works at the grocery store and sells us groceries and then they come see us to get education when they need it. Then they go down the street and get a hamburger when they need it. So, uh, you know, but we still have to produce things in order to have that good GDP. We want to maintain strong production. The Bureau of Labor Statistics publishes quarterly GDP figures that can be used to compare trends of national output. When GDP rises, the economy is growing. It's showing that we need to produce more and more things, which, which kind of hits everything. That means more and more people will be working. Uh, there will be more income and more disposable income in the economy. People are going to buy more houses, cars, and other things. It just makes the whole wheel go around if we see that GDP number going up. The level of economic activity is constantly changing. It's not static. It's up and down. You know, there are cycles that we go through. And when things are normal, there's not any type of pandemic or anything interrupting business cycles. We typically go through a regular cycle throughout the year where, and it very much follows the, the seasonality of it. When kids go back to school, uh, moms and dads are buying back to school supplies and clothes and they're spending money on that. 
And then typically the months of like September, October, uh, discretionary spending goes down, but then it ramps right back up for November, December for Christmas. Then January, February, discretionary spending goes down again because everybody's broke from Christmas, right? And then as we lead into summertime, people start thinking vacation, travel, discretionary spending goes back up. And so that is kind of a normal ebb and flow of individual households and our economic cycle. That's not a you know, end-all, be-all case, but that's just an example of how a cycle works. A decline in GDP that lasts for two six, uh, consecutive quarters each three-month period is called a recession. Um, and so the last Great Recession was when? 2008. And that was brought about by a thing called uh, credit default swaps. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that right now, but generally speaking, people were lending money to buyers who really couldn't afford to buy houses, and it caused people to have massive defaults across the country. Um, and the, the end result, basically the rich got richer and the middle class and the poor got poorer. Uh, there was over 5 million homes lost back to the bank. Those banks took those assets and then eventually sold them for a profit. You know? um, and there's other like crazy corruption type stuff in there I'm not going to get into, but uh, we will study the recession uh, in this class. It's a great uh, thing to talk about because it's so recent. It happened within the past decade or so. The situation in which the average of all prices of goods and services is rising is called inflation. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot, you know. Uh, the story I like to, to, to tell is about a candy bar. You probably have heard your parents talk about, when I was a kid, I went to the movies with a quarter, and I could get a candy bar, a popcorn, a drink, and go see two movies, and have enough money to come back home and get a hot dog on the way home. Some version of that story, right? Have you heard something like that from, if not your parents, your grandparents. They used to say, you know, if you had 50 cent, you were, you were big balling. You know, you had a lot of money. Uh, what do you think is a decent amount of money today? 20 bucks, 50 bucks, something like that? I mean, 20 bucks doesn't go too far, right? If you're sending the kids out to the movie, they go to the movie, if they get a popcorn and a drink, that 20 bucks is gone. And so, yeah, so in comparison, that $20 bill versus 25 cents or 50 cents, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, there's a big gap there. Do you think that naturally things just said we're going to make things more expensive? Partly, but the bigger culprit is monetary policy and inflation. Up until 1971, the dollar was pegged to gold, and it created a scarce amount of dollars. We can only have this many dollars because there's only this much gold that we can say is backed by that money. Nixon depegged uh, the dollar from gold in 1971, and ever since, you can see this inflationary trend happening where prices keep going up, but our earnings or, uh, I guess, wages have stayed pretty stagnant. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean by what does depeg mean? Okay, depeg means separate from. So, like, the dollar used to be pegged or tied to the uh, physical gold. And so we actually divorced, is another word. We divorced phys uh, paper money from physical gold in 1971. And when we did that... It basically allowed the government to print unlimited money. So, that's so how we debt. well, that's one way, yeah. But now we're at a situation where um, we keep having to print money because the debt is so great that we have to print money to service that debt. And all we're doing when we print money is taking on like a promissory note to ourselves. We're saying we're going to create you know billions of dollars that we may we're one day going to pay back, maybe you know. And like, yes, sir. 
America is a big business, but it's a game of trust. That's what, that's what all money is, is trust. When you have those dollars, you're basically uh, saying that this is the energy that I've expended is represented in dollars. If you've got $10,000 right here, that's a lot of energy, you know, that you've expended, you know. And so you've put a lot of time and effort into getting that 10000 But if you've got 50 bucks, that's a little less energy that you've expended to have that $50 bill. But there's a word that we call paper currency. Fiat. Yeah. Fiat means by decree. That's what gives it value. It's not value because it's tied to a resource or a scarce item. It's valuable because the government says it's valuable. Fiat money. And so uh, inflation over time reduces purchasing power. It's very insidious because we know about taxes, right? You go to the store, you buy something for a buck, you pay seven cents in tax, right? And if you make a certain amount of money and you pay your income tax to the government, you may or may not get a refund. You may have to pay the government more because of taxation. But inflation and losing purchasing power is very insidious. Let me show you another graphic real quick. Um, pull that up. Let's see. Dollar purchasing power over time. Yeah, this, this is uh, pretty crazy. So this is um, the dollar purchasing power since 1910, roughly, to now. And so what this means is that a dollar bill over time could buy less and less. Or I guess, you know, I don't know what the metric is. Hang on a second. Um, purchasing power of U.S. dollar has fallen sharply over the last century due to rising inflation and money supply. So, yeah, it's a, it's a double whammy. The inflation is happening, purchase power of $1. So in 1910 or so, 1920, a dollar could buy you roughly $25 worth of goods in today's dollars. You know, one, like, that'd be like having a dollar bill and go buy $25 worth of stuff. But now that dollar bill is, by contrast, lost a lot of its purchasing power because it comes down to supply and demand. When there's a, I know dollars seemingly are scarce. There's not a lot of them out there, but there is, in fact, a lot of dollars out there. And when you have more of something, uh, supply and demand comes in uh, to, to play. Let me talk about supply and demand real quick. So um, I'm not going to go over this because it's in the book, but it just talks about the, the gov federal government's breakdown of where we allocate our resources. Uh, where revenue comes from and where expenses go from, from go to. This is the government's outline. But yeah, demand and supply, supply demand is much more important. Um, there is a, demand is the quantity that, of something that's, that's wanted or buyers willing to buy at various prices. So if I have, um, you know, I always liked Christmas like items, whatever the hot Christmas item is. When I was at Walmart, Tickle Me Elmo 10th anniversary came out and it was a super hot item. You'd get it in, it would sell out inst instantly. They were about 25, but you remember that? Yeah, my cousin, because like my cousin was crazy about it. Yeah. Yeah. So you would come in and they were 25 bucks or so, but they would sell on eBay for about 100 bucks. I know because I did that. Supply and demand. You can't get it, it's available online. Anybody a fan of sneakers? Nike, Reebok, Adidas? So if there's a hot pair of sneakers that come out, say Nikes, Nike purposefully limits supply. They can produce enough sneakers to give them to everybody, but they don't want to because they want it to be scarce and hot and interesting, and they want it to be in demand so people are seeking it out. People will pay people 
uh, money to stand in line at Foot Locker to get sneakers that they can resell on eBay and other sites. And so the demand of, of high demand items, uh, companies keep having to raise prices of those items because the demand is there and people will pay that price. If uh, a graph of this relationship is called the demand curve, meaning that as demand increases, so does price. Demand alone is not enough to explain how the market sets prices. We must also look at supply. The quantity of a good or service that business will make available at various prices. The higher the price, the greater the number of uh, supplier will have to supply and vice versa. Let me explain that a little bit better. So if I've got a ton of a product at a store I need to get rid of, like Walmart recently I walked in, they had a bunch of snorkeling sets, flippers, snorkel, mask. They were $29.95 marked down to 7 bucks. There's probably 50 of them on the shelf. They're nice, nice scuba snorkeling gear. So the reason why they mark those masks down is because, number one, they've got a glut, a lot of supply, and the demand is low because summer's ending, right? So as demand is low, they have to lower the price to increase the demand. So I bought a couple sets for my, my family and my kids can play with. I went back in the next time, they're all gone. So they had dropped the price enough to merit a, an increase in demand. When you have that at a perfection, when supply and demand meet, that's called an equilibrium. So in a uh, stable economy, this is a, talking about a jackets example, but um, in a stable economy, the number of jackets that snowboarders demand depends on the jacket price. Likewise, the number of jackets that suppliers provide depend on price. But at what price will consumer demand for the jackets match the quantity of suppliers will produce? And so they, they de determine by supply and demand how many we have available, how much demand is for what we have available. They finally reach an equilibrium point and it's always good for suppliers or sellers to start out at a higher price than they intend because they can always lower prices, but it's hard to raise prices, right? So if I have a new product come to the market and I say, you know, I set the price $299, sells out instantly, gone. Well, I probably missed an opportunity because people obviously were interested in it and probably willing to pay more. There's more demand than supply. You know, you think about video game consoles, right? Anybody a video game person in here? A little bit? Yeah. When I, I spent, like I said, several years at Walmart, anytime you get into these new consoles, PlayStation 5, for example, you can't even get that thing nowadays still. You know, it's still impossible to get. Uh, it's because demand is way outstripping supply, and they could probably raise the price even more on that thing. I think it's like five or 600 bucks. And so equilibrium is where it's a perfection of supply and demand meets, and that doesn't stay that way always. Things will change. All right, let's talk about this last piece right here. Characteristics of pure or perfect competition includes a large number of small firms that are in a market. This means like we've got several competitors on Wayman Memorial that sell hamburgers. That's, that's good. We want them to keep doing that because that encourages them to have good products at good prices. If we only had one, that one could charge whatever they want to. And you know, people may or may not eat it, but they, they would have more of a control over the market. The, it's not good to have monopolies, which I'll talk about in a second. The firm sells similar products. That is, each firm's product is very much like the products sold by other firms. These are called substitute products. Buyers and sellers in the market have good information about prices, sources of supply, and so on. It's easy to open a new business or close an existing one. These are all examples of good competitions, and it lends well to a good economy. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, a pure monopoly the market structure in which a single firm accounts for all industry sales of a particular good or service, the firm is the industry. 
Um, Microsoft was charged as being a monopoly years ago because you think about it, a large chunk of PCs that come out have Windows. That's kind of very monopolistic in nature. This market structure is characterized by barriers to entry, meaning factors that prevent new firms from competing equally with the existing firm. Yeah, I mean, all of us use Windows, right? PCs? Yeah, what would it take for a competitor to come in to take out Microsoft? It would be extremely difficult, right? And so that is a large barrier to entry. Um, last thing we'll talk about today is an oligopoly. It has two characteristics. A firm, uh, I'm sorry, a few firms produce most of all of the outputs. So it's not just one, but it's a small cluster of individuals. Back in the early days of railroads, um, the, the railroad companies kind of colluded with each other to keep um, smaller competitors out of the market. Uh, same thing with oil, same thing with uh, automotive industry. They passed the Sherman Act in the United States to prevent this type of corporate collusion. Say, we don't mind you existing because customers can only come to you or me, but we don't want anybody else playing in this, in this sandbox. So other characteristic, large capital requirements or other factors limit the number of firms. A great film I sometimes show in my classes is called Tucker, One Man and His Dream. It's about a guy who wanted to build an automobile called the Tucker to compete with General Motors and other Detroit large automobile manufacturers. It was an extreme, it was extremely expensive undertaking, something like $2 million they raised. This was in the 30s and 40s era. And he ultimately only produced like 50 of these vehicles because the government, uh, the company's got the government to step in to shut them down with all these accusations. But he actually did create the cars and it's an incredible film of how oligopolies work and they do collude with the government. So we'll stop here for chapter one. Uh, be sure to do your homework. Chapter one's due tomorrow night. Um, pretty straightforward, but if you have any questions, shoot me an email. Um, if you have not done the enrollment verification quiz, I'm going to start like making you go do it after class next week because it's due uh, very, very soon. So make sure if you haven't done the enrollment verification to do that. All right, guys, have a great weekend, and I will see you next Tuesday. Chapter two.